This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you, Lord, for the privilege and the opportunity to study together, to learn more of your wonderful word of truth, to receive the outpouring of your Holy Spirit through the early and the latter rain. I pray that you will please give us understanding, you'll please forgive us of our sins, and that you will open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of your law. We thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you know, there, there's a topic of the early and the latter rain that you find throughout the Bible. And uh, one of the things I want to encourage you to do, if we were doing a class and if I was, you know, working with you all as students, one of the things that would be your assignment is you would have to find everywhere in the Bible that the word rain is used. And you would have to look for everywhere in the Bible that the word showers are used. And you have to look in the Bible to find every time the word do is used. And what you would do is you would take all these different words, rain, showers, do, and so on, and you would find out, well, what do they mean? Do, do any of those verses apply to the Holy Spirit? And if so, how? Now, if someone were to ask you, where in the Bible do we even find, like where, where do we find that the Holy Spirit is referred to as rain? If someone were to even ask you that question, is there a Bible verse that can help us understand that the Holy Spirit is referred to as rain? You think there's one that exists? Definitely, definitely. Now, let's go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. In Isaiah, the 44th chapter, this is a great example, and, and I like it if it is found, you know, if it can be found in the Bible, then we obviously want to express it from there. Now, rain, showers, Waters, do, all of these different words and terminologies you'll find are reference to the Spirit. Now, is God down here or is God up there? What would you say? His very presence. Is he down here or is he up there? So is he, he's not here with us, quote unquote. His very presence is up or above us, right? Now, you'll, you'll find there's a reason why I'm asking you this specifically. I know that God's Spirit can dwell within us and I'm not negating that. But I want to show you something. In Isaiah 44, notice what the Bible says in verse 3. It says, for I will pour water. Now, question, who is talking here? Who is talking? So the Lord is talking, right? Now, God said, now how do you know the Lord is talking? How do you know it's not Isaiah? Very good. Verse 2. So verse 2 shows us that thus saith the Lord. So God is talking. And where's God? Is he down here or above there? Now, if God is above us, then if God is way above us, beyond the earthly heaven, or, or beyond the atmospheric heaven, beyond the starry heaven, if God's way up in paradise, and then he says, I will pour water down to you. When water is poured from top to bottom, what do we call that in the common vernacular? We call it rain. Is that right? All right. So God says, for I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground, 
And now God begins to explain more clearly what this water or floods are all about in the next statement. It says, I will do what? Pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. So you find that God will use terms like water. He'll use terms like rain. He'll use terms like dew. He used terms like showers. He uses all these different types of terms to basically teach us lessons about his Holy Spirit. Are you following? Good. So God tells us, all right, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pour down rain. I'm going to pour down water. Now, there are other verses that we can go to. Go to the book of Joel, chapter 2. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, so let it be established. So let's look at Joel. Chapter 2. And when we look at Joel chapter 2, and you'll find that the reason why this is so important is because, again, there's something called Adventist language. Which basically means that because we spend so much time around one another, that we start to talk the language of our movement. You know, I say 1844, you know exactly what I'm thinking. If I go to most of your homes and if I wanted to find out what's the security code on your house, 1844. So Seventh-day Adventists could probably have a lot of success breaking into Seventh-day Adventist homes. We, we have a language. We have a lingo. We have ways that we communicate with each other and we use certain expressions and terms. But what we want to do is we want to be able to always remember that our expressions and our terms should be Bible-based. We want to do all that we can that if we were ever asked the question, where in the Bible does it even talk about the Holy Spirit being equated to rain? You and I should be able to... Say, oh, turn to this page or turn to this book, turn to this verse, turn to this chapter. We should be able to direct. Is that right? So don't take Adventist lingo for granted. When the time comes that you want to talk about the remnant, when time comes when you want to talk about early latter rain or any of these topics, you should be able to open up your Bible and walk people right through it and show them here's where it is right here. Are you following? So that's very key. Now, in the book of Joel chapter 2, you find that the Bible says in verse 23, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the what? The former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain. The former rain and the latter rain. And when's he going to do it? So he's going to do it in the first month. Now look at verse 28. Verse 28, same chapter. He says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions so in verse 23 he says i'm going to pour down former latter rain in verse 28 he says i'm going to pour out my spirit and then when we go to the book of acts chapter 2 where the spirit of god came down on pentecost peter says this is a confirmation of what job was talking about so therefore, we have the witnesses in the Bible that we can clearly see that this rain clearly can be represented as what? The Holy Spirit, right? Now, here's the thing. When does rain fall? That's going to be something we're going to have to study out, right? We're going to be studying that throughout the remainder of our sessions together. Because remember, we need to understand the time of rain. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Let me show you something. Well, let's go to, let's go to Ecclesiastes 3.1 first. 
and then we'll go to Deuteronomy 11. So Ecclesiastes 3.1, and then we'll go to Deuteronomy the 11th chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1. I remember one time I was doing a health meeting, a health lecture, and I was talking about um, times to eat and times to drink. And I said, did you know that the Bible teaches us principles about times to eat and times to drink? And they said, well, how do you figure that? And I said, it's easy. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1. What does Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 1 say? The Bible says to everything. To how many things? It says to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Is it part of our purpose under the heaven to eat and drink? So then there must be a time for it. You see how simple that is? If, if eating and drinking is one of the purposes of life and what we do in this world under the heaven, then there must be a time for it. And that's as a health educator. Now I'm going to show you proper times to eat and drink. And the only way we can understand that, we have to understand physiology. And brothers and sisters, tomorrow you're going to see the connection between physiology and the latter rain. You've got to understand physiology. When you understand physiology, you're able to understand better how to prepare even for the latter rain. Isn't that amazing? Now, here it is that while it is true that there's a time for every purpose under the heaven, it is also true that there's a time even for rain to fall. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 11 now. Deuteronomy, the 11th chapter. Let's find out what the Bible says. And when you get there, let me know by saying amen. All right, now, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Now, look at Deuteronomy 11, and let's look at verse 14. When we look at Deuteronomy, the 11th chapter, we're looking at verse 14. I want you to see how God puts this uh, point or prerequisite as it relates to even the falling of the rain. It says in Deuteronomy 11:14 that I will give you the what? Rain of your land in his due Season. Now, if you look up that word season in the Hebrew, it says time. So the rain does not just simply fall. It falls in its due season or its due time. Are you getting it? All right. It says that I will give you the rain of your land in its due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. So what have we learned just by looking at Deuteronomy 11 and verse 14 as it relates to the rain? There's a season or a time for it. So latter rain does not just fall simply because we ask for it. Doesn't work like that. Early rain does not fall simply because we ask for it. We need to ask for things in their right time. You remember when Mary came to Jesus? And she came to him with that problem. You remember what the problem was? In John chapter, I believe it's 2, they ran out of wine. They ran out of grape juice. And Jesus, what did Jesus say to her? He said, it is not my time yet. You're asking me for something, but it's not time for me to fulfill what you're asking. Jesus was a man who respected time. He understood there's times for things to be done. This is not the time yet. When individuals tried to kill Jesus, Jesus would always escape. And then eventually, the scripture says, the reason why they couldn't kill him, because it was not yet his time. So God understands time. I'm telling you, time is powerful. That's why it's, the, it's, it's one of the things least respected by many of us as God's people. Lateness is typically the middle of our names. You know what I'm saying? 
whether it's for work, church, or anything. Worship, devotion, morning manna, many a times, late, 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 late. And Jesus is trying to say, listen, if you want to be successful like me, Jesus says you've got to learn something. Go to Luke 16. Let me show you what Jesus wants us to understand. You know, I have a, I have a whole study called Little Things Mean a Lot. And, you know, and that, that study, I, to me, is, is, is just so incredibly powerful because if we can learn to do this in Luke 16, you'll be amazed at how much success you and I will have in the work. Luke 16. When you get there, please say amen. Now, in Luke 16, notice how God expresses these words in verse 10. Luke 16 and verse 10, notice what the Bible says. It says, He that is faithful in what? That which is least. It says, is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. You see, if we're going to be thou faithful unto death, then Jesus says you must learn to be faithful in that which is least. If you and I do not learn to become faithful in the little things, we will forfeit our experience of being faithful in the great things that are getting ready to take place in this world and take the majority of the people in this world as an overwhelming surprise. I remember one time we were talking about uh, cleaning up our rooms. I was talking with some young people. And, you know, parents always have a problem getting their young people to clean up their rooms. And I told the young, I was talking to a group of young people. I said, listen, do you want to be like Jesus? And the young people said, yes, we want to be like Jesus. I said, you sure? Yes. I said, can I show you something about Jesus? They said, show me. I took him to John, the 20th chapter. And when I took him to John 20, I wanted to show them something very important about Jesus. You know what John 20 tells us? It tells us that when Christ rose from the grave. Now, what do you, what do you think, brothers and sisters? You know, when Jesus wanted to, Jesus had to ascend to the Father for the approval of the sacrifice. Is that important? <laughs> you better believe it. But do you know it's so deep? is that when Jesus rose from that grave, you would imagine that Jesus is saying, look, i got a big mission to accomplish. I need to ascend to my Father. But brothers and sisters, you know what John 20 says? It says that when Jesus rose up, before he would even go to his Father, the Bible says first he would take his clothes and he would begin to fold it. And he would lay it in its side. And then he would take the, the wrappings off his head and he would lay that on a separate side and let them in order in a special place. And if you would read what Christ's object lesson says about that example that Jesus left for us in the little things. Jesus understood, if I can learn to be decent and orderly in that which is least, by the grace of God, when confusion, Babylon, begins to try to induce me with its wine, I will be decent and orderly in that which is much. I said, young people, you say more about which one you're preparing for, either the mark of the beast or the seal of God, by your bedrooms. Because if you can become uncomfortable with an untidy, unkept bedroom, there's a good chance that you can become comfortable with an untidy, unkept soul. When we learn to be faithful in that which is least, it becomes a natural part of our mind to be faithful in all the larger things of life. So God understands that. When people go in your car, gentlemen, what do they see? When people come in our homes, sometimes people come to our homes and, you know, they, they come in our homes and we're like, 
wait here. And everybody's running in the house. All right, clean up. And you send the alarms and everybody has to clean up and mop and do all this stuff. And God says, if you were just doing that every day and you want to know why it's so important to do those things, you want to know why? Let's see. I want to say Deuteronomy 7. I don't think it's Deuteronomy 7. I want to make sure that I give you the right text on it. Put out those nations. I'm looking for the text where uh, God talks to the children of Israel about the camp, and he says that they are to have a paddle by their side. Any of our scholars remember that one? It's in Deuteronomy. I'm just trying to remember the exact chapter. No, it's not Numbers 15. It's in Deuteronomy. Let's see 17. Let me see if that's it. There you go. You know, if it wasn't 17, it was 23. Let's go to Deuteronomy 23. (laughs) I appreciate my, my, my scholar friend, Brother Chris. All right, Deuteronomy 23. Now, look at this. This is how serious it is. You see, we think that God is not serious about this thing about getting cleaned up. He wants to cleanse the sanctuary, brothers and sisters. And the only reason why Jesus can't cleanse the sanctuary is because he has a group of people that keep sending dirt into the sanctuary. It's called the dirt of sin. And a lot of people, you know, my mother used to always say cleanliness is next to godliness. And I could never find that in the Bible, but this is the closest you'll find it. Deuteronomy 23, notice what it says in verse 13. It says, well, let's let's look at verse 12. It says, thou shalt have a place also without the camp, whither thou shalt go forth abroad. And thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon. Now, a paddle is like a little shovel. It says, thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon, and it shall be when thou wilt ease thyself abroad. Now, that's a King James way of saying doing number two. That's all it's saying. When thou shalt ease thyself abroad. Look at what it says. Thou shalt eat, when thou shalt ease thyself abroad, it says, thou shalt dig therewith and shalt turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. So God actually gave instruction on hygiene in the camp. He said, listen, don't just go around leaving that stuff all over the place. He says, I want you to dig a hole, and when you do it, cover it up. Now, why did God say that? Verse 14. For, or because, the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee and to give up thine enemies before thee. Therefore shall thy camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in thee. And do what? Turn away from thee. I think God takes cleanliness on a whole different level that we have yet to understand. Ellen White says that I would never call an untidy, unkept person a Christian. And so what I'm saying to you is that, believe it or not, this becomes very serious. I don't want you to to think lightly of it, but God takes very seriously the cleansing work. And he understands if we can be faithful in that which is least, we will be faithful in that which is much. Now, we can't do this without God. It takes the power of God's spirit to be faithful in that which is least and that which is much. And so it is that God says, listen, there's a time for everything that is under the sun. There's a great cleansing work that he wants to do as it relates to the sanctuary. We're back to the sanctuary now. He says, I need to clean my people up from their sins. And therefore, he knows the only way this is going to happen is they must receive the early and that latter rain. 
but there's a time for when it comes. Now let's take a look at some of the things that shows us about the function of the early and latter rain, or the early rain. It says, in the east, the former rain falls at the sowing time. It is necessary in order that the seed may germinate. So what's the purpose of the early rain? Germination, so that the seed may begin to open, grow, bud, sprout, develop. We need to understand the early rain. What is the former? When the Bible says former rain or early rain, same thing. Little rain, same thing. So therefore, the Bible says that the purpose of the former rain is so that the seed may begin to germinate, grow, bud, sprout, develop. It says, under the influence of the fertilizing showers, I like how she calls it that, the fertilizing showers, the tender shoot springs up. Now, the latter rain. The latter rain falling near the close of the season. Isn't that interesting? Beginning of the season, close of the season. At the close of the season, ripens the grain and prepares it for the sickle or the harvest. You following? It says, the Lord employs these operations of nature to represent the work of the Holy Spirit. As the dew and the rain are given first to cause the seed to germinate and then to ripen the harvest, so the Holy Spirit is given to carry forward from one stage to another, all right, from one stage to another, the process of spiritual growth. So this is the function of the early and the latter rain. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 32 because the first way you're going to find that the rain falls is expressed here in Deuteronomy 32. There's a lot of dialogue about this in, uh, in, in different uh, circles, but we want to see it in its fullness. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Because we need to understand the rain in the natural agricultural world, we understand it's going to fall. It has a time or a season, as we clearly saw, and that rain, when it falls, it's going to cause the seed to germinate, bud, sprout, and grow. All right? And then the latter rain fills out the grain and makes it ready now to go through the harvest, to make it all the way through harvest time, up to harvest time. Now, when it comes to the rain falling, Deuteronomy 32 helps us to begin to understand, well, how do I now understand this in the spiritual world? I understand this in the agricultural world. But now, how do I apply this in the spiritual world? Look at what it says. Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Now, I want you to carefully look at verse 2. My what? My doctrine. What, are, what is doctrine? Teachings. He says, my doctrine shall drop as the... Rain. My speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. So when we're talking about the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit as it relates to the early rain, what's one of the first phases that it does? It comes to us in the form of doctrine, teachings. Now go to John 14. Let's see, let's see how the Bible brings these things out. John 14. John 14. Now, John the 14th chapter, you'll look at verse 26, and you'll see that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does, doesn't he? Look at what it says. 
John 14 and verse 26. Notice what the Bible says. If you dare say amen. The Bible says in John 14, 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, what's he going to do? He's going to teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So the, the work or the office of the Holy, teacher, Holy Spirit, think about it. We know in John 16, the Bible says he will convince us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But how's he going to do that? Through doctrine. He has to bring the teachings to us. So while knowledge is not the end all, be all, knowledge is the perfect start. You and I need knowledge. We need to understand. We need to be able to contemplate and to be able to reason together. So the Spirit of God must come. And when he comes, remember what Jesus said in John 16 and verse 14, when he shall come, he shall testify of me. So he's going to bring the teachings of the Word of God to yours and my mind, helping us to behold Christ in the Word. That's going to be very key. So when the rain falls, the rain is going to fall to reveal Christ to us and to help us understand all of Jesus' teachings. That is practically how the rain falls. It is not something where we're just simply waiting for some dynamic power. But watch this. Go to Acts chapter 1. Because we're not limiting power. Heaven forbid. But sometimes people are asking for rain without study. Sometimes people are asking for rain and they don't even know who they're talking to. Some people say the Holy Spirit is just a force. Some people say the Holy Spirit is God. People have all sorts of different views about the Holy Spirit. What do you say? What do you think the Holy Spirit is? Do you believe he's a person with a personality? If you believe inspiration, you should. The Bible makes it very clear. First of all, you can't grieve a force. Is that right? So when you read Ephesians 4 and verse 30, when the Bible says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption, you can't grieve a force. You can grieve a person. In the book Evangelism, 600, page 616, it says the Holy Spirit is a person with a personality. L.O.I. makes it clear. He is the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is definitely a person. He's definitely God. You remember in Acts chapter 5, when they came and they, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they went and they told that lie about the offering that they were going to present in Acts chapter 5? And remember what Peter said to them when they told that lie? He said, you didn't lie to men. He said, you lied to God. But then the next verse, he says, you didn't lie to men. You lied to the Holy Ghost. So one verse, you lied to God. Next verse, you lied to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. So some people are actually praying and asking for a being that they don't even know who he is or how he works or so on. And brothers and sisters, that will never give you and I the experience we need to make it through the final crisis. So when the Spirit of God comes, he's going to reveal doctrine to us. He's going to open our minds and give us understanding. But then he also will fulfill Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, if you're there, please say amen. Now, you know Acts chapter 1, beautiful statement in verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the Bible says, But ye shall receive what? Power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. 
So when the Spirit of God comes, when the rain falls, that rain is going to open our minds and give us understanding of truth. But that same rain is going to empower us to live that truth and be an effective witness. There are two ways that you witness, with your life and with your mouth. The problem is most people keep looking forward to the latter and neglecting the former. We witness with our lives. And brothers and sisters, if we just do it God's way, we'd be fine. If we witness with our mouths, but when people look at our lives, they say, you look like me, you act like me, you dress like me, you drink like me, you eat like me, and so on and so forth. They're going to look at your message and say, yeah, it sounds cool. Granted, I can't contradict you. I can't prove you wrong, but I'm still not attracted to your message and I don't want it. When God wants us to give the gospel, he wants us to understand that we need to give to the world something better. But if they can't see the joy of Jesus in you, I'm serious, a lot of times Seventh-day Adventists look just like that, sad Adventists. They look depressed, they look down, they look like they hate their religion, and they look like they're forced to do everything they have to do. And then on top of that, nine times out of ten, we're not practicing all the things that contains our message anyhow. So the world looks at us and they're saying, you really expect me to follow this? Or we do the seminar, the Revelation seminar, whatever the case may be, and people join the church. And then they begin to say, okay, now you just told me, you just did your whole health evangelistic meeting, and now you're serving macaroni and cheese. I'm confused. That's what the people are saying. You just told me a final crisis is coming and a Sunday law is about to be passed, and now I'm looking at your lifestyles and I see that your lifestyles look exactly like mine. You look as unprepared for a final crisis as I do. I'm in the city, you're in the city. I live off of credit cards and everything else, you're living off of credit cards and everything else. So the people are looking at the lifestyle. Dress? Forget about it. They're saying, okay, you dress just as worldly as I do. I can see every curvature, every line, and every frame of your body, and yet you're trying to tell me something. Then you're going to tell me, don't wear jewelry. But I keep seeing this thing on your finger. How do you take the Bible? How do you take the Bible and help somebody see that wearing jewelry is wrong, but you have this on your finger? I'm being honest with you. I'm, I'm challenging you to be consistent with your message. That's why we have an influx right now of, of people in the church that are, are, are just literally... I've never seen so much... You know, it's funny. I've only been in the church for 19 years, and I have not seen so much jewelry in the Seventh-day Adventist church since when I got baptized. The standard was higher when I got baptized. And now it's like, man, but I believe one of the reasons why is because you can't tell... You cannot biblically tell people that jewelry wearing is wrong and have this on your finger. How can you biblically do it? Don't tell me about what councils and groups came together and voted on. Tell me what the Bible says. I'm just being honest with you. Tell me what the Bible says. Because that's, we, we don't function like that. We are a Protestant movement. We are sola scriptura. We base our teachings off of the word of God. So we have to educate based on that. Once we begin to say, well, my church does it. Well, our conferences voted for it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not against conference. I'm a self-supporting minister, but I am a member in good and regular standing. <laughs> At least in my knowledge. 
with the organized body of Seventh-day Adventists. I believe with all my heart that this is God's church. And the fact that I see the problems in the church convinces me more that this is God's church. But brothers and sisters, sooner or later, you've got to realize that Jude verse 3 must become a reality. We have to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. So what happens is people are watching us more than they're listening to us. And if they see our lives are not consistent with these great, grand, solemn messages, oh, brothers and sisters, the people are saying, keep your message. And that's why what's happening, especially in North American Adventism, we're seeing a revolving door. People coming into church and then leaving after a few months. Do a big evangelistic meeting, spend thousands of dollars. People come in and then they leave. That's a tragedy. I remember there was a US, USA Today article that came out talking about the Seventh-day Adventist church and our growth in North America. Now, when I read that, I said, now, i got to read this article. I said, let me read this thing. And I started to read it. And you know what they said later on in the article? They started to talk about how they have like Starbucks type church services and so on. And as soon as I read that, I said, no wonder. And I threw it down. You see, anytime we start to drop our standards and drop the old paths and the landmarks to try to get into these new theologies and new ways to try to win souls, that when we compare to the blueprint of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and we see those contradictions taking place, brothers and sisters, God says, I'm not in that. That's false revivals. We must understand that if we're going to experience true revival and reformation, we have to go back to the blueprint. We have to do it the way God said it. So when that rain comes, the rain must, the Spirit of God has to teach us, to open our eyes. That means that those who are really experiencing the early rain, brothers and sisters, they're going to start having Bible studies like they've never had before. That's a sign, that's a symbol that the early rain power is doing its germinating work. If you find, brothers and sisters, that it's easy for you to go a day, a week, a month, or whatever, and you're doing some haphazard, half-stepping type Bible studies, brothers and sisters, I can promise you, you're not even receiving the early rain, let alone ready for the latter. You've got to get back into the Word. You've got to study and tax that mind and say, I need to understand what I believe. But as the Spirit of God comes to us and teaches us truth, he enables us to live out that truth. That's why Christ Object Lessons, page 331, says, All God's biddings are his enablings through the same Spirit. Now, one of the key things that the Spirit of God wants to teach you and I right now is none other than that wonderful sanctuary message. Let me show you why. Go to the book of John 16. John 16. Let me show you why. John chapter 16. Well, I guess we'll go to John 14. I'll, I'll come back to John 16. Let me go to 14 for time's sake. John 14. In John 14, you'll remember that the disciples, of course, asked Jesus a question, how shall we find our way back to the Father? And Jesus answered in verse 6. What did he say? He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Is that right? 
So therefore, no man can come unto the Father but by Christ. Jesus says, I am that way. Now, as Jesus says, I am that way, back to the Father, I want you to notice what the Bible also says in Psalm 77. The popular proof text that a lot of sanctuary students like to use. Psalm 77. Let's notice what the Bible says here now. In Psalm 77 and verse 13, Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the way of salvation. And we find in John 77, or rather Psalm 77 and verse 13, it says, Thy way, O God, is where? In the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? So therefore, we find that Jesus... Now keep in mind, where does the rain come from physically? It comes from the clouds, right? God, spiritually speaking... He is where? Where is he? Now, how's a whole bunch of Seventh-day Adventists don't know the answer? Where is God right now? He's not just in heaven. Don't say that. He's in the heavenly sanctuary. Is that right? So therefore, watch this. So if rain in the natural world, if rain was to come down, it would come down from the what? From the clouds in the natural world. The rain would come down from the clouds. But in the spiritual world, the rain comes from where? The sanctuary. Because the rain has to come from wherever God is. Do you remember God said, I will pour out the rain? So if God is the one that's pouring out the rain, he must pour it out from where he is. And God is in the sanctuary, therefore he says, I'm pouring out the rain from the sanctuary. Now, here's my question. Because God would be pouring the rain out from the sanctuary, chances are, would you agree that those who receive the rain should understand what God's doing in the sanctuary? Does that make sense? Those who would gain the blessing of sanctification must first learn the meaning of self-sacrifice. The cross of Christ is the central pillar on which hangs the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. If any man will come after me, Christ says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It is the fragrance of our love for our fellow men that reveals our love for God. It is patience in his service that brings rest to the soul. It is through humble, diligent, faithful toil that the welfare of Israel is promoted. God upholds and strengthens the one who is willing to follow in Christ's way. Now, the central pillar here is what? All right, so the, the cross of Christ is that central pillar on which hangs the far more exceeding internal weight of glory. Hold on to that. Let's look at another quote, line upon line. The scripture which above all others had been both the foundation and central pillar of the Advent faith was the declaration unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. These had been familiar words to all believers in the Lord's soon coming. So one quotation says, the central pillar is the what? Cross of Christ. The other quotation says, the central pillar is dealing with the sanctuary, specifically the cleansing of it. So what is one thing that we should be able to see in the sanctuary? The cross. Beautiful. Beautiful. The cross of Christ is best understood through the sanctuary. You know, Seventh-day Adventists have a reputation by some 
to be individuals who focus too much on the most holy and forget the cross. Now, that may be true. There are some people who talk law, law, law so much that they forget about that wonderful grace and love and mercy that was demonstrated on the cross. That is true. We've met some fanatics. Have you ever met one? That is true. But there are those who can bring the balance of showing the cross in the sanctuary, the cross in the most holy place. Are you following? So central pillars. Now, the reason why this becomes interesting is notice this quote. Each morning at 6 o'clock at the Avondale School, Brother Haskell speaks from the scriptures giving a Bible lesson. This is free to all and there is a goodly company out each morning, for it is a blessing to all. This study lasts for one hour. These meetings are intensely interesting. The subject thus far has been the sanctuary question. So what's the subject being studied? The sanctuary question. It says, and we are highly gratified to see the interest manifested. All are much interested in the way he presents the subject. He speaks in a clear, simple style and brings in much scripture to sustain every point. He feels that altogether too little has been said upon this subject, for it is the central pillar that sustains the structure of our position at the present time. If you and I find that we can go days, weeks, months, and years teaching things from the Bible and never bring it back to the sanctuary, it is as if we are establishing a house without pillars. There are many individuals today who do not believe in the sanctuary message, who do not understand the sanctuary, and they have no desire to do it. And this is why we have so much confusion in the church. Do you know there are people today right now who believe that we cannot have victory over sin, that we'll keep sinning all the way up until Jesus comes? Now, when someone tells me that, they testify that they don't know the sanctuary message. That, that to me is clear. If someone told me that, I, my very next question, I would say, tell me what you understand about the sanctuary. Now, can I share with you one of the reasons why it is, it is so incredibly unbiblically balanced to say that man is going to keep sinning until Jesus comes? Let me tell you why. If you believe the Bible, then that means that there's going to come a point in time where Revelation 15, verse 8, is going to become a reality. Revelation 15, 8 says that a time is going to come where smoke is going to fill the temple of God in heaven and no man will be in it. Now, who's the only man in the temple right now? Jesus. And what's he doing? He's doing, he's doing the work of judgment and so on, but he's interceding for us in that whole process. Is that right? So if the sanctuary now becomes filled with smoke and no man is in it, what does that tell us? That means that Christ is not in there anymore. And if Christ is not in there, that means he's not doing a mediatorial work anymore. Are you following? Now, according to the Bible, does Jesus come back once that temple is filled with smoke and there's no man in it anymore? What does the Bible say happens next? Revelation 15.8 says, the temple was empty, filled with smoke, no man was in it. Revelation 16 now begins to talk about the falling of the plagues. Probation has closed. Now here's where this, to me this is so incredibly logical. Probation is now closed. The plagues are falling. Will there be wicked people alive when the plagues are falling? 
Will there be God's people alive when the plagues are falling? Okay, so, so watch this. Temple filled with smoke, no bodies in it anymore. There's no more mediatorial work going on in the sanctuary. Probation has closed. He who is filthy is filthy still. He who is holy is holy still. Now, plagues begin to fall. Do the plagues fall on the wicked or the righteous? It falls on the wicked. So therefore, the righteous are not receiving the plagues, right? All right. So now the righteous, what are they going through? They're going through the time of Jacob's trouble. And is there a meteor in the sanctuary in heaven? So here's my question. If we are going to keep sinning until Jesus comes, then that means that a time is going to come where there will no longer be a mediatorial work of Jesus in the sanctuary. And if the righteous living under the time of trouble were to fall into any sin, if they confess their sins, there's nobody in the sanctuary to do any mediatorial work for them. And sins that are unconfessed and sins that are not pardoned remains with the sinner. That means when Jesus would come, he's going to either do one, one of two things. Either destroy everybody or he's going to save people in sin. If you and I believe that man will keep sinning until Jesus comes, we have no choice, according to the Bible, to accept one of those two positions. Either everybody gets wiped out and destroyed because they all are going to have sin upon them because the sins can't transfer to the sanctuary because there's nobody there. Or Jesus is going to come and say, don't worry about those sins. I'll save you anyhow because of my grace and love. And you know what would happen if Jesus saved everybody just out of his grace and love for his creation? Satan would say, hey! If you save them in sin, you have to save me in sin. And Satan would call Jesus right on the carpet. He'd say, if you're going to save them while they have unconfessed sins upon them, you've got to save me. And that's why Satan and all the hosts of hell rejoices when man and ministers teach. We're going to keep sinning all the way up until Jesus comes. It is a most devilish doctrine. And brothers and sisters, God says that's the whole reason why I'm giving the truth of the early and latter rain. When we understand that the sanctuary message is the central pillar of who we are, you and I should understand the sanctuary like we understand our first and last name. Did you know that? Great Controversy 488 says, the subject of the sanctuary in connection with the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. Now, if I ask you, hi, how you doing? What's your name? Do you go like this? Well, let me think about that. Or do you say, clear as day, my name is, and you know it, because you know it. 
you clearly understand your name. Is that right? The subject of the sanctuary in, in connection with the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. Are you the people of God? You should clearly understand the sanctuary. And if you understand the sanctuary, you will understand the need for victory over sin before the second coming of Jesus Christ. If you understand the sanctuary, you will understand the need for victory over sin before the close of probation. If you understand the sanctuary, you will understand the need to have victory over sin before the Sunday law test comes to you. That's how serious this is. And if the Sunday law is right around the corner, then I think you and I need to really be about our father's business. Would you agree? So God says it starts with the early rain. You and I have to receive that early rain. It pours from my sanctuary, and that teaching that the Spirit is going to bring to you is he's going to bring you Christ, the plan of salvation, as seen and understood through the sanctuary. This is how it's going to come. Now, the reason why I bring these points out is I want you to turn your Bible to the book of Exodus chapter 30. Watch this clock here. What time do we have? Okay. All right. Exodus chapter 30. In Exodus chapter 30, in fact, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you a break now. Five minutes, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to pick back up on the study dealing with the early rain. There's much more that we need to understand about this early rain as we prepare for the latter. Let's take a break now, five minutes, then come back, and we're going to pick back up on this. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the things that we have learned thus far. I pray that you will continue to settle us into these truths, both intellectually and spiritually, so that we cannot be moved. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.